Hey, wow, it's you. It <laughs> well, um, okay, first let me just say hi, everybody, and welcome to Letters Off Paper. And my name is Jennifer Jazz. I'm the host of this podcast, um, which is basically a series of conversations with other writers about our work and, you know, everything that talking about our work kind of evokes, you know, we just move around the topic of writing. And um, tonight I have the pleasure of being with none other than Alvin Orloff, the author of Disasterama, Adventures in the Queer Underground, 1977 to 1997, as well, and I should say it's a memoir published by Three Rooms Press. I think it came out last year in 2019, right? Right. Cool. And um, but you're also the author of, of other work. I married an earthling, which was my first I think the first book that I read by you. Um, Gutter Boys. Um, what else? Why aren't you smiling? Yeah, what else? That's, it. that's basically it. Well, that's that's a lot. <laughs> that's that's a lot of books to write, in my opinion, because writing books is nothing simple. That's for sure. Um, so. Uh, welcome, welcome to to you know letters off paper, and it's also just cool to speak to you. I haven't spoken to you in ages. You know that? It's I mean been years, years, years. Like voice to voice, I mean, because we yeah. message and we've texted, but this is like the first time I've actually heard your voice. Um, well, you know, where can I begin? Um, okay, I'll begin with with making a kind of obvious observation that you. In in this book, in Disasterama, Adventures in the Queer Under, Underground, you really bring back that moment in, in history and time with a vengeance, right? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. like with a vengeance. It's like, it's like, it's pretty over the top. And not in terms, you know, of the narrative being, you know, exaggerated or some kind of extreme kind of writing or something, but... I think it's the precision and the detail mm -hmm. that it's just kind of just that's what makes the impression, you know, that you really set out to step by step, moment by moment, fashion by fashion, street by street, you know, person by person, all the names. And then in the center of the book, there are even photographs of the people that you talk about. So you like really methodically roll this story out. And I wanted to talk to you about what was behind, you know, that 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 urge, that effort. Well, okay, there was a, a coworker of mine once was talking about the 1990s and how easy everything was back then and how, you know, back then it wasn't like now, you know, money grew on trees and, you know, there were no problems. And, you know, my 1990s and certainly the 80s and 70s were so different. And I think the real mm -hmm. difference was that, you know, the era that I'm discussing, 77 to 97, was for me completely overshadowed um, by the AIDS epidemic and my coworker who said, you know, was talking about how easy everything used to be with straight and just, you know, it just didn't affect his life. And, hmm. you know, I really wanted to capture uh, a, a, an era that's gone with the wind to, to use a cliched term and sort of make people who didn't live through it, understand what it was like to live through that era. Um, because I don't think, and I think also there are other things that have changed so completely you know, I don't think that someone coming out of the closet in 2010 uh, or 2020 
is going to have any conception of what it felt like to do that in 1977. And I think it's an interesting, kind of a fun, interesting uh, task to set yourself to be able to, to take people back in the time machine and say, okay, here you are, all of your assumptions, everything that you know is completely different. And these are, these are your options. Wow. Well, okay. That, you know, that intensity, you know, I'm feeling it in the book and as well as you're talking right now. And I think what makes it so intense for me is that there's this kind of, there's this conflict in, in the story between the book or, the, or your story being a political act mm -hmm. by recording. It just feels like I'm going to document yeah. this. I'm going to document every moment. And it feels like a political act, but there's this conflict with a confession, a very personal confession about how you became you. Mm -hmm. And so you feel that, and there's just something really unbelievable about how you go back and forth, you manage both um, in a way that I've never seen before. Um, tell me, was, was that difficult for you to manage? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know. it's not something that I did consciously. I think it came out because I wanted the book to be an entertainment as well as a historical document. And, you know, I mean, I write, I try, I attempt to write humor. I don't know if I succeed, but that's, that's sort of my, my modus operandi is I go for the joke every single time. If there's a joke to be made, I will make it. And um, as far as like the confessional, like how did I become me thing? Um, I'm also, you know, I'm an American. I'm a narcissist. Um, we're all narcissists here mostly. Um, so it, it really came very easily for me to insert myself and my sensibility, the jokes came easy. Um, and the hard part was to sort of remember actually the, the historical aspects of everything that happened because it's been a long time. I mean, we're talking going back 40 some odd years. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of you being a historian, I would say that you were very effective at, <sighs> at how you kind of built up from, you know, just starting out with a personal story about being young and being gay and trying to come into that as a human being, as a person, you know, what is this? I want to know, I want to explore who I am. And then little by little, it becomes a much larger story, a, a much larger story about a pandemic, you know, this, this kind of weird kind of biological or who knows we'll never really know what that no. was and where that came from but it has it, you anyway you, you manage again to navigate two different directions one is a social history and the other is again like your own personal coming of age story um i guess um i wanted to know um let's see you make like a superhero like transformation from being an outsider in the San Francisco kind of gay scene to be a major splash in the gay world of Manhattan. Can you tell me, you don't really explain well, I it. Really, in I, wasn't really splash. I was a splash in my own mind, but you know, it's easy to become a splash in your own mind. And I think that, you know, we all start out as, you know, messy little outsiders when we're growing up, you can't, well, unless your parents are celebrities in that case, then you can grow up as a, an insider. But other than that, I mean, if you want to be, you know, a, some club personality, it's, you know, it's not that hard. And I think most people do make a sort of a transformation, um, you know, when, when they when they hit town and, and start hitting the, the night spots, which, you know, and for me, that was, you know, that was where I, I made my mark was, 
you know, in, in nightclubs and, and they're not very exclusive when you get right down to it. Mm. Um, it seemed to me that maybe you were more, maybe you just came through better in, maybe you met the expectations of New York better than California. That was my impression. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm sort of a, a New Yorker monk, as it were, um, always have been because, you know, I just have a lot of New York in me. My family, you know, came to America through New York. I grew up in New Jersey for a few years before I moved to California, right outside of New York. So I've always had the kind of this notion in my head that New York was the center of the universe, which was sort of true in the 70s and 80s into the 90s a little bit. Um, you know, that was where, you know, the the makers of, of happening cutting edge culture congregated, no longer anywhere near true. Um, so that New York sensibility, um, was something I aspired to, you know, to be like the things that I really thought were super happening. I think I I mentioned them in the story, like what in my teenage mind was the apex of humanity was that was the Algonquin round table, punk rock and and factory. (laughs) That was like those three things. Um, Oh my God. Um, what would you say the fundamental difference was in terms of even just vibe between Castro and Christopher? Oh my gosh, Christopher Street was more multicultural. Castro was very white bread. Um, mm, and, uh, okay, that's my. That was kind of what I oh, was yeah. thinking because of the way you described yeah. it, but I wasn't sure because I don't know California yeah. at all. You should come here. <laughs> well, it's gone now, but it was really, it was really fun for a while. Um, now it's kind of a hot mess, but um, you know. Mm-hmm. That, well, so is it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, have, I just want to say I have read a lot of, of memoirs. In order to write this one, I read a lot of other me- people's memoirs, and. Um, mm. You know, a lot of people write memoirs that are just completely cut off from the goings on in the world of culture and politics. And True. I, just, I don't True. I don't get it. It's like, did people really live that way? Maybe they do. And I just don't know any people like that. But in my world, everybody is more or less obsessed with one or another cultural or political phenomenon and follows it intensely. And it affects how they make their life decisions. And so I definitely wanted to write a book that was, you know, incorporated uh, the ambient culture and, and political situation into, you know, my own story. Well, that comes through on every page. It comes through that 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 was a mission that you were on. There's a pol- there's a p- political, you know, drive towards you telling them yeah. that story. Now, here's something I observed. Um, I think that towards the end, you start to talk about becoming a writer or acknowledging this this ability to write or this desire to write. But I remember when we were sitting side by side in the mailroom at the New York Review of Books that you definitely, and I also, had aspirations, but they were very yeah. repressed. We both, want, I mean, we wanted to write. It was obvious to me because we were even working on stuff sometimes, sure, very sarcastic sure. stuff. When we, yeah, when we had mm-hmm. downtime, we would just say, yeah, let's write a play. Yeah, and I'll be this one. Yeah, and it was, it was just ridiculous. It was always sarcastic. We were always hung over. It was always kind of like against the grain of, of the more literary environment that we were in. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember even as a child, I wanted to be a writer. I told my grandmother 
um, once that I wanted. She said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a writer. And she says, eh, there's enough books already in the world. <laughs> so. Um, okay. So she was true. very She's totally true. There's plenty of books out there. The world doesn't need another writer. But I did it anyway. So there. Huh? Um, but yeah, it was always something that I wanted to do. But I definitely did not know how to go about it. I didn't have any mentors to teach me how to do it. Um, Oh my gosh, something just fell over in this room here. Um, I was only <laughs> action. Um, so yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have any notion about how to go about becoming a writer. And I, you know, for long stretches of my, of my youth, I did not do any writing at all. You know, basically I, I, I just didn't. Um, and I probably should have. And, you know, cause the more you do it, the, the easier it becomes and the better you get at it. Um, but you know, once I, once I, uh, once the zine revolution and the open mic revolution sort of hit in the late eighties, early nineties, that's when I really started applying myself to that. And that's, I think what you, what I probably allude to at the end of the book is really to, to jump well, on that. And, uh, do you, okay. Do you, do you think that there was also this, um, you had to go against the grain of the more traditional idea of what a writer is, the guy in the tweed jacket smoking yeah. a pipe, uh, the, the guy with his legs crossed, you know, speaking at a very measured pace and being extremely, you know, thoughtful and, and not like sarcastic, yeah. not joking around, you know, I mean, wasn't, wasn't it difficult to overcome those expectations and just kind a of- A little bit, but there were also, there was, I may not have had any mentors or role models, but I did have, the experience of watching the Dick Cavett show growing up a little bit with my grandmother in the basement. I was an unpopular child. So I spent a lot of time yeah. in the basement with my grandmother and she had, you know, Merv Griffin and Dick Cavett on and they would have, she would, they, those two guys would have really great writers on. They, you know, Gore, I, I, I certainly know knew who Gore Vidal was and he's, you know, he might be like wearing a tweed suit jacket, but he was definitely a wisecracker. And, um, yeah, there were a lot of wisecrackers, um, but they all still kind of fit within an yeah. Upper West Side yeah. kind of circle. You know, that school, it was a mm -hmm. certain school. And um, well, I have a question for you. OK, so basically uh, in the book, you discuss, you know, being a despised, a member mm -hmm. of a despised minority. And so what I'm thinking is that at the same time that, you know, you roll out, you know, page by page, the just how spectacular the culture was and how genius in many ways it was and how, of course, it's like gay culture has been an incubator for everything from fashion to, to literature, but we overlooked that probably, you know, um, to, to music, to, to, to style itself, um, to, to how we eat, you know, or drink, you know. Um, and so I guess my question would be, do you think it's, um, it's stereotypical to make an association between being a member of a despised minority and having some superpower to be created. Oh, no, I think, I think it, um, yeah, definitely. You have to be a little bit of an outsider to be able to see the world around you with uh, enough depth to be interesting, for it to be interesting. I think that people who are fit into the world perfectly make lousy writers. Um, you know, so. <laughs> Um, hmm. Well, um, if you, let's see, if you could change the past, would you have begun to write uh, oh, yeah, earlier? For sure. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wasted a lot of time, um, you know, trying to please other people and trying to fit into scenes that I wasn't really into because I wanted to be around this or that boy or person. And um, yeah, no, I definitely would would have would advise that, you know. And yeah, I would have done everything totally differently. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm riddled with regret. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I think everyone is. Well, amazingly, um, in California, yeah. this is one reason you might not want to come to California, is there are people here who are just so serene that they are not riddled with regrets, and they're terrifying. They are just like, <laughs> what is wrong with these people? Um, well, okay, right. I meet people like that, too, but I notice that their lives tend to be, like, very well thought out and that they kind of followed mm. through with these plans that they created early on and then they fulfilled mm. their dreams or something. I can't believe people Weird. like that exist, but yeah. there are a lot of people like that. Like, you know, like they actually went to college when they were 18 mm -hmm. and didn't mm -hmm. drop out. Come on. How, how impossible. And then they, you know, went and got some more advanced education. And then, you know, the mortgage word seems to come up with getting a PhD mm -hmm. more and more these days and stuff like that, put themselves on, you know, a, a, like, I guess, a, a, a successful kind of track. And, and then, they, you know, later in life, they yeah. reap the benefits of it and stuff. Interesting. So. In many, in many ways, your book is, you know, I guess it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's like a manual for what you <laughs> yes, don't want to sure. do, right? Yeah, there, there's okay. things. I mean, I don't regret some of the, the lurid things. I don't regret, you know, having been an exotic dancer. I don't regret, uh, you know, having befriended a lot of dodgy people. I mean, I think both of those things were, were fun and interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, I certainly regret the amount of time I spent on sheer hedonism. I mean, dancing in clubs is great. I shouldn't have done drugs, you know. Um, there's things I shouldn't have done for sure. Well, that's what I was about to ask you. Do you think that when we think back to those times, you know, with all the drugs and, and how, I guess, free-spirited we were in terms of everything, sex, you name it, we were just really relaxed. Mm -hmm. We did what we wanted. And do you think that, I notice now that there's some kind of correction going on where people are looking back and saying, you know, we shouldn't have done that. We should have been more cautious. We should have thought about the ramifications of this or that. Um, do you think we should embrace that or not, what we did? Because we were pretty out of control. And so, I mean, can we drink a toast to having been out well, of control? Or is that I think drinking a toast to it is the exact right thing to do. <laughs> Maybe a double martini. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, it's, 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 maybe you can regret something, but, you know, there's also aspects to it. Like, okay, well, now the world knows not to do that. Now the world knows you can't have, you know, sex with, you know, 16 zillion multiple partners. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, people have, uh, it, I think cultures learn the way people learn. And the older cultures of the world, you know, they, they evolve certain um aspects of them that that are responses to things that have gone on in the culture and i think american culture has now recognized that a you can't be completely repressed like in the 1950s and just make everybody into a you know nuclear family zombie and it also knows that you know wallowing mm. in the mud and having free love and on lsd is maybe not also the the best um, <laughs> um well you're making me think about the martyrdom, you know, the martyrdom um, 
the, you know, the, it's it's kind of a martyr. It's kind of a story of a martyr mm-hmm. or martyring ourselves. For, for example, by having taken those risks, by having done what we did, you know, day to day in the ways that you spell out in the book in terms of how we dressed, you know, the, the various crazy ways that we, we hooked up, my God, um, the sex culture was pretty out of control. In my memoir, I talk about guys in the park near my house, just kind of frolicking every night after sunset in the, in the bushes and stuff. I don't believe that that's easily as easily, you know, possible in that same park. Now I would say it's probably impossible. Um, So I guess we were martyrs in some way in terms of like, setting setting a standard mm-hmm. for for pleasure or or not setting a standard but kind of destroying a standard and creating and no just we didn't create anything intentionally i think we were setting out to just break stuff you know do mm-hmm. something else not do stuff um so do you think there's a price to pay for challenging the status quo um and that that's kind of what happened in in retrospect or do you think that there's a way for us to continue even with all the risks involved, you know, um, to, to move culture into, into the danger zone, you know, uh, as we move forward and keep that as I'm an sure ongoing people agenda. Can, people can what continue do to, to challenge mainstream culture. And, and I don't, I mean, because we were, we were reacting against an extremely repressive uh, past that is no longer there. I mean, and now at this point, the people who are in control of this country are every bit as wild berserk out of control with, drugs and and whatever as we ever were only they're you know they're doing it in this kind of sick way you know they they do it with prostitutes they do you know they they they're having their cake and eating it too i mean i don't want to mention a certain president's name but i don't think that he has um come up against any limits to his to his lusts or or uh or passions um and in a way i almost think it's like in in the 19 40s, you would have thought, what would a society matron be like? She'd read poetry, she'd do good works, she would um, have some sort of like fun, creative outlet. And that's all like now that's what hipsters do. While the people at the top of the pyramid, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the plutocrats um, have become just they're just these berserk monsters. Um, you know, oh my god but, um, oh my god uh, i've never heard a better description of the current like all of the clowns who occupy you know those buildings in dc they're all definitely just like they're an odd lot and i do agree that especially a certain just certain members in, in particular seem to be perpetuating an image that behind the scenes they they can't possibly you know uphold right there's a lot of that there's a lot of you know closeted you know behavior and not just sexually just people just lying and saying that they stand for stuff while they're obviously have like some kind of ominous sinister agenda involving you know money and stuff like that i think there's a lot of you know corruption financial corruption going on in dc that we don't have the ability to grasp. And um, I'm sure that there's a lot of deals being cut and there's a lot of under the table money that's not tracked. I think we've reached that point, you know? Um, yeah, in terms of the deceit of government and 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 the whole spectacle. And the government class feels, they feel entitled to, um, to whatever they want pretty much. Well, as I think Bohemians are now very, very constricted. Wow. It's like, 
you know, they're, they're knitting sweaters and, and being, you know, taking their, their, uh, their social responsibilities very seriously in a way that sort of makes them maybe a little bit unfun sometimes. Um, but, you know, better people for sure. Well, um, okay. So a lot of what you describe in your book yeah. is, yeah. is like fun, right? Having fun, right? The book is just this, this big, you know, this big celebration of having had a lot of fun. And so then later on in the book, there's this kind of like, you know, there's the sad part where people are dying. And so what I'm, what I, I guess what I'm asking is, um, do you think that having fun in and of itself in a society like the U.S. Um, isn't destined to be met with punishment? Because we're a society of, of yeah. workers. We're supposed yeah. to work our asses off 20 That's like that's the American agenda. And so do you think that we just paid the price for not oh. having worked, you know, hard enough? Because it seemed like there was a like a, just a complete and there's always resentment towards people who don't, right. you know, pay taxes and all this petty. <laughs> it's like, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think that there are certain sanctioned types of fun that are okay, and 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 mm. there's always okay. going to be unsanctioned types of fun. And the reasons our types of fun were unsanctioned, some of them were good and some of them were bad. Um, uh, but I don't think I think the price that we paid was it was literally just bad luck that a really killer virus came along just right just then. Um, you know, it's, and, uh, yeah. 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 I think that, you know, that was, I think if we look at what we're going through now with this particular virus that we've had like a series mm -hmm. of these pandemics that have struck, but a, a sexual pandemic, you're going to, of course, yeah. try to find someone you're just going to, I think, you know, pa the powers that be are going to try to link it to behaviors yeah. and use it as an opportunity to, to repress, to repress people and make them I mean, feel guilty. Um, millions of people, you know, get lung diseases from smoking, but there's no, I mean, the moral opprobrium on them was nowhere near as intense as the moral opprobrium yes. heaped upon promiscuous sexual people. Um, you know, so it's, it's all, it's a, some of it was about defending the, the, the old nuclear family model, which I don't think the ruling class really cares about anymore. Um, um, where did where did it go? Who's responsible you know, for having trash that? Maybe the time has moved on. I don't know. There wasn't there wasn't the need for it anymore. Um, there was, it was it was there was more money to be made by having everyone turn into a worker than having a woman home in the house consuming. They needed to that the economy shifted in a way that you know made housewifery un, un, unprofitable. Um, it's something that a political economist would have to hmm. talk about. I'm not really, I'm not really convinced of that. I'm just, I'm just sort of guessing. Free, I'm free associating here. Well, yeah, I think it maybe it. just went out of out of fashion or something. <laughs> you know, remember, you remember like those shows that used to come on TV where the moms oh, yeah. always had these glass pitchers of milk and. And well, yeah. like those moms don't exist anymore. It's hard to keep that thing going. And I, I think those moms right. rebelled and burned their bras and stuff at some point. It's, 
Yeah, it's been but like you know an what? ongoing. I always sort of thought that that would actually um, have been my idea of a good career was being that kind of a mom because you know, I like cooking, I like puttering around the house. You know, I'm not so much with kids, but with cats, I'm I'm a good cat daddy. Um, you know, parenting wise. And, you know, I'm all for putting the milk into a glass pitcher because it looks so much nicer on the table than having just a carton with like the advertising on the side. I mean, ugh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. we did romanticize yeah. that kitsch culture, right? We were, we dressed like, especially you, you used to dress like, yeah. Yeah. like Wally yeah. from yeah. Leave it to Beaver, right? And you did it, your hair, you did your hair like him. You had like those... Those, those shirts with the buttons on the collar and you tuck you tuck in your shirts and stuff you know you were pretty um, you were pretty I would say nostalgic or you know someone who had a lot of enthusiasm about those fashions from that time think, um, yeah I mean I, I would yeah. also say that um, what I think attracted me most to that era was the manners that people were you know I and mean, of course it was completely fake but the people on those tv shows that i saw because you know, i already grew I mean, it was already past the 1950s by the time i was learning about that sort of kitschy conformist culture um but people had good manners and then by the time you know i was growing up people were just so vulgar and so kind of rude and and i, I kind of miss the good manners and i think maybe what's happening in america now this complete total implosion of civilization to the point where we're like practically like you know the barbarian hordes is because people have abandoned the manners manners there's no one has any manners anymore and people are, are just you know or, or except for bohemians of course who are busy knitting sweaters and and doing good works and writing poetry you know but the the mainstream culture i mean ugh, scary Yeah, the mainstream yeah. culture is ill. I remember watching think? some TV show. I don't know if it was Roseanne or something. And it's just I remember someone said something, and and I think it was Roseanne. She said, "Shut up!" And then the big laugh track. <laughs> That's so funny that this person <laughs> told her child to shut up. I mean, gosh, I don't know. I, I can't with that. I think it's wrong. But um, yeah, we've lost something. Um, when I think back to the 60s and 70s, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. in a very cliche way, we lost our innocence, you know, we lost our innocence, but exactly what led to no. that, no. you can't pin that on young people having sex or changing fashion. Something yeah. has happened and it, yeah. it's related it, it, to it, politics. Yeah, for some, know? it was, I don't know, yeah. People figured out what was going on. <laughs> um. Well, um, okay, so basically, um, I have one, one more question for you. And, and that is, um, do you think at the end, you know, of your memoir, you talk about mm -hmm. losing your co-conspirator and dear friend, right. um, diet right. prostitute who I know, I, I know is Michael. And, um, well, do you think that loss kind of made you write? Is that like what, because you had a lot of distractions, you were doing a lot of different things, but do you think loss gave you the discipline to grab a pen, sit down and start work from beginning to end and become prolific and, and also to identify yes. as a writer? <laughs> what do you think? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, one thing that loss does is, you know, you become outside of the life that you were leading. And, and of course, you just have to be a little bit outside of something in order to write about it. And also losing, I, I felt very much uh, obliged 
an almost almost a moral sense that all these people's stories, these people who died, that someone had to record their stories and that they didn't just pass into the universe forgotten, wow. you know, that, that, um, and cause you know, and most people do pass into the universe wow. forgotten, but you know, I, I wish, I wish it happened less frequently. I wish everybody in the world, you know, could have all their good stories written down somewhere because everyone's must have at least one, one or two good stories in their life. And it would be great, you know, for future generations to have access to that. And sadly, so many people died from, from HIV and AIDS that, uh, a lot of the stories did just, you know, pass out of human memory. Um, and uh, yeah, so I wanted to do my bit to, to see that that didn't happen. Well, you, you did more than your bit. I think that your book will, will stand out over time as, as a go-to resource for, for, you know, what that was and not a cold kind of uh, chronology, but a very personal walk you know, through the life of one person yeah. who lived through that time and saw saw the whole, you know, the whole thing from beginning to end pretty much. Um, anyway, I just want to thank you for hanging out with me, for talking to me. Um, yeah, and for writing your book, you know, thank you, because it gives me strength. It gives a lot of people strength. You don't really um, present yourself as a professional writer so much as a human being who at mm -hmm. some point decided I'm going to write. You can't sit around <laughs> waiting for an invitation. And it's something about it. It's not going to come. Yeah. Trust me. I mean, <laughs> just, just I, I know you, you, you're you wrapping well, up here, but I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you know, you have written your memoir and, and uh, you know, you must, a lot of these same questions that you've asked me, I could easily have asked you. I mean, you kind of jumped in, but I think, I think maybe one thing, what, what was it? I just was really wanting to know what prompted you to at this time, take the plunge and, and put that in. Well, I mean, the thing with my memoir is that I began it in 1990 or 1989. Um, in 1990, my son was born and I tried to keep it going on the kitchen table. I had a typewriter at that <laughs> yeah. time and there was like yeah. peanut butter and jelly on my, you know, my pay, you know what I mean? And, a stroller and a baby bottle and all this stuff that it all didn't really work well together. So at some point I took what I knew as my manuscript and put it in a box and sealed it until um, maybe 2015 or something like that. So that you're talking about a book I began mm -hmm. in, two, in what, in 1990 and then tried to actually go return, prompt, revisit and finish What prompted recently. you to finally get it out so, of the box? What was the precipitating incident? Well, to, to be perfectly honest, uh -huh. it, at that point, it was clear to me that my son was a man and that I, and that I wasn't obligated, you know, to yeah. wake up in the morning and think about what was mm. going to be for breakfast or how mm. he was doing. He's an adult and he's completely independent. And really, I mean, truly, that's what happened. Motherhood, um, motherhood mm. became more important than my book. The, the two competed, you know, it was yeah. motherhood versus writing and motherhood won. So, yeah, but, um, you know, I managed to get mm -hmm. back to the book. What is it like 30 years later or something like that? Persistence <laughs> and pays I'm working off. on something new. Listeners. So there you have it. Listeners, persistence pays <laughs> off. <laughs> well, 
Yeah. Well, anyway, I want to thank you, you know, yeah. for hanging out with me and talking to me. It's been a long time. And um, yeah, we have to do this again when you finish your, I'm sure you're Sounds working good. on this. All right. Thanks for having me on. Next book. Let's do this again. All right. Ciao, ciao. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take care. Take care.